welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Hansel Rodriguez of Core Communities. Before we dive in, I wanted to ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind taking an extra 30 seconds and heading over to iTunes to rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that five-star review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Hansel is the Principal of Investment Strategy and Acquisitions at Core Communities, Core focuses on acquiring manufactured housing communities across the United States. Hansel began his real estate career in multifamily and affordable housing development at Taft Development Group, which is a multifamily developer with over 4,500 multifamily units and 100,000 square foot of commercial developments to date. Hansel, welcome to the show, brother. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome, man. Yeah, we were, uh, I was just thinking earlier today, you know, I've, I've been wanting to connect with you. We haven't, we haven't really bumped into each other at any conferences or anything, but, uh, you know, I'm excited to get to know you a little bit better on this podcast, dude. No, and likewise, I've, I've heard a lot of great things about you. So, um, so no, it's about time we meet and I'll, I'll just say that this is my first, first podcast. So I, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts historically. I'm so excited to see how it all works when you're actually on the interview. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Dude, well, thanks so much again for coming on. Uh, let's start out with, uh, would you mind telling us about your story and how in the world you got into manufactured housing communities? Yeah, no. So uh, so my background is pretty interesting. I, I'm a first-generation kid to go to college and all of that. So I really didn't know much about real estate investing or, or really business in general. I'd started with my dad's liquor store back when I was 12 years old. He would have me stock shelves and stuff like that. And from there, I learned, I wanted to learn a little bit about business. Um, so I went to college and ran into this family office developer, the Taft family. For whatever reason, I asked, they were very nice to, to hire me as their first ever unpaid intern. And I annoyingly kept asking them, hey, how do you put a model together? How do you do this? How do you do that? And long story short, that's really where I started back as a sophomore in college. Uh, from there, learned a little bit about real estate and jumped into single family, um, built a little fix and flip business, and then went into finance for a couple of years, uh, four years specifically more on the M&A side of the world, essentially advising companies on how to buy companies. And from there, read a bunch about manufactured housing. I, I loved the strategy. I loved the fact that you know a lot of these owners are family-oriented owners, like my, my dad was when he started his career. Um, and so funny enough, ran into a guy who you may also know, Corey Woodruff, um, to buy, uh, to buy my first property. Uh, you know, he had a guy, he had been a dealer and had touched a lot of different things. So we partnered up together, um, and ended up being a great success. So I bought that one with him, bought two more. And then in November of 19, I left my last job to do this full time. Since then, and now we've grown the 19, 19 assets, roughly 1400 units, mostly in, in Florida and the Sunbelt States. Um, but yeah, but it's been a very unique journey. Not, not how I would have uh, anticipated my career coming out. Wow, dude, that is fantastic. That is such a cool story. So let's go back to the liquor store. So your dad had a liquor store. Uh, you know, yep. Gary V, Gary Vandercheck. I, I mean, I've, obviously everybody from, you know, the internet and stuff. Yeah. yeah. He's a complete hustler. 
Yeah, there's the like some parallels business. there though, because that's how he got into the the wine. It was like a wine, uh, like wine box delivery. for sure distributor. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Look, for a lot of people, my dad came here in the '70s, right? So for a lot of people, first generation. I mean, there it was either convenience stores, gas stations, liquor stores, right? My dad got into supermarkets a little bit as well on the grocery side, but yeah, it was a completely it was an education for sure. I mean, he had me stocking shelves, learning how you even, you know, count cash and all that stuff. Very different than some of my buddies that were out playing baseball <laughs> at a rec league. <laughs> but you're right. No, Gary V's crazy with that stuff. He's, he's That's super popular. That's so awesome, dude. That's awesome. So you had the entrepreneurial, you know, spirit from your, from your parents early on, your dad. That's so cool. And then the unpaid internship, dude, that is so brilliant. Your sophomore year in college with the Taft group. I mean, how did you get that? Was that like through your university or you know, how did you stumble upon that? No, it was uh, complete. I mean, I reached out, right? So I was in a small town, Greenville, North Carolina. Um, there weren't many, you know, there weren't a ton of developers in town. And someone had told me, oh, you should look into real estate. And I said, well, I don't know anything about that. So I started talking to different folks and learned about Taft. They owned student housing developments in town. I was working at a um, I ended up working at one of the leasing offices to learn a little bit, but really just so I could pay my rent where I lived. And they mentioned this family and Taft Senior, Taft Junior were amazing people. I was shocked at the amount of time that they would spend. There's a couple other good mentions. I mean, Dustin and um, and Mike were, they just would sit down with me. And I said initially, like, look, I don't, I don't need to make any money. I'd rather just learn what is a multifamily deal? How do you do it? They did something very unique in the tax credit space I'd never even heard of. So they would just sit me down. Like I'd listen to the calls and stuff. It was awesome. Uh, but yeah, it was, I was spending money on gas to get there. <laughs> but look, Smart. You know, when you, when you go to college and you don't really know what you're supposed to do, everything feels normal. So that, that was the result of just reaching out directly and, and lucky enough, um, they were nice enough to take me in. <laughs> Dude, Hansel, so. that is like, you know, if I could teach anything to my kids, you know, how I wish I would have got started is, Hey, go work for somebody for free. Just show up yeah. at their door and say, hey, I'm free labor. I'll do whatever you want me to do and get in the door and just soak up as much as you can. So that's that's really cool. Kudos to you for taking initiative and getting in the in the door there. Um, I appreciate that. And then you then after college, single family home, fix and flip. I did the same. I kind of had a similar path in residential. Oh, and then, really? But that was uh, you had the consulting thing and then you were flipping on the side. Is that kind of how that worked out? Yeah, no, no. So, and and I will say, I wasn't trying to be a mogul back then. I was flipping contracts. I would find mm. an owner at what I thought was an honest price, and and then try to sell to an investor that actually had the money. You know, that was a different time. Uh, and as a sophomore in college, very hard to try to convince people to give you money. <laughs> so um, that was just a funny way to pay bills. You know, there was one deal in particular where I made my first real profit, and that was life changing. Um, so I ended up also hiring a bit of an intern at the time. And so we just started analyzing, putting as many offers as we could out in the market. Uh, and it worked out great. Um, a, a guy, Anthony, he, he was just a hustler like I was. We ended up doing 40 homes in that business, wow. which is a huge number. Yeah. Now, given that wasn't all in college, it kind of progressed sure. in my career um, in partnership with some folks. But yeah, no, that is like everything in life. It just kind of happened. Um, but it's a great place to start, right? I mean, a single family house, not, not too hard to understand and value. There's always somebody, you just have to understand the price. Um, so it was a great place to learn how the real estate process goes from soup to nuts. 
Oh, totally. And the construction management and all that, that's just invaluable oh, yeah. experience. You know, you probably learned so much there, uh, you know, that you couldn't learn in, in, in school, right? hundred percent. Yeah. And you know, construction is incredibly unpredictable. I always had a good partner there. We'd had deals where we thought we we're going to great, make a great margin mm. and construction's delayed three months. Right. And yeah, uh, we were, yeah, you, you just, it's, uh, probably the most I've ever learned was it was in doing houses. <laughs> That's so awesome, man, dude. So 19 assets, 1400 units all across the Sun Belt. That's a fantastic portfolio. What do you think is the toughest hurdle to overcome in mobile home park investing? Well, a couple things, right? I mean, well, do you mean in the current environment or just in general? Because the world say just in, <laughs> the world has changed, you know, and, and I have yeah. another question down here where we'll talk about the future uh, yeah. and like kind of where we're at right now with interest rates and everything. But like right now, just for you, like like right. breaking into a portfolio of fourteen hundred units, maybe you can just shed some light. Like what was what was the toughest hurdles you had to overcome? Yeah, look, I, I think the biggest thing is speed, right? Um, so I was selfishly wanted to grow very quickly. Um, so I, even though we've been around for three years and, and some change, I really left my job in twenty nineteen, November twenty nineteen. So from there to now, growing at that pace was challenging always trying to identify who the right team was, who's a good, you know, operations person, accounting mm -hmm. person. That's difficult. I think that's where a lot of people get it wrong. And then I, the second piece is definitely just acquisitions. I, you know, as, as you saw as well in the Sun Belt, it was so competitive at prices that if yeah. you didn't keep in mind the context, you could have easily gotten, you know, <laughs> a little too excited and, and overpaid for certain things. To be disciplined in the last twelve to twenty-four months prior to to this year was difficult, uh, especially when you're you're eager to grow. That was difficult. There was a lot of good deals. I felt if we could have made work, but we walked away from with just that uneasy about what could happen in the future. But those are those are the two biggest things. People don't give it enough credit. Scaling at at a at a reasonable pace is something that requires a, basically your full time more than your full time your entire day, yeah. <laughs> including weekends. Um, and then, and then when you grow to a size, like you, you've been able to achieve very successfully, then it's really about team, right? Uh, all about you the could, team. Yeah. Yeah. You could say all day, you can handle all of it, which I have an obsession with, uh, I need to get better about delegating. Um, but I will say, I mean, when you, you, the importance of knowing who to pick and putting those seats has been life-changing for me, still learning that every day. Dude, don't we all need, need help delegating? It's just, you know, similar to you, you know, it's like, these, these, these are, these are my babies, you know, I, I don't want to just, <laughs> you know, pass them on and it's, it's been tough, but yeah, building systems has, has helped tremendously. But I want to go back to what you said about speed, you know, because a lot yeah. of people don't realize, you know, at least for me, you know, I man, I self-managed my first five parks before I brought on anybody else. And I always tell people, you know, now we manage our parks so much better now compared to when it was just me wearing all those hats, you know, managing those five, right? From me oh, paying yeah. all the bills, opening all the mail, you know, sending out the checks, doing the collections, you know, managing everything to now where we have people that we can actually like have a good management company and silo off different divisions has been huge. So I agree with you. Speed and getting enough scale to be able to hire out certain roles is so important. Otherwise, you're literally running around like a chicken with your head cut off. Oh, for sure. And, and I'm sure it's a question you get, you know, sometimes from investors like, oh, well, how, how can you continue the pace of growth and, and you know, what you're doing? And it's funny, it never changes. To get from 1,000 to 10,000 is an instrumental step of different things. From 10 to 20, it, it never, 
you never stop figuring that out, right? Um, I think, you know, personally from, from our company, when we hit about 500 sites, there was just a difference and we could finally afford things, right? Um, yeah. When we hit a thousand sites, accounting became the most important function in the company, <laughs> right? Yeah. It was no longer, you could just run around and, uh, and manage it in-house. Now, given we, we bought, you know, smaller communities. So we're, the 19 communities is, is still a smaller amount of units. Um, but still, I mean, to this day, it's all about the numbers. And so who knows what the next 1000 will bring, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's an evolving art. <laughs> it really is, man. It really is. But kudos for you for getting up to 1400 units. I mean, that's, that's a, getting over a thousand. I mean, is like that, that's a tough, you know, a, a tough number to get over and get the right people on board and, and everything. So, um, sure. fantastic. Let me, let me learn about your investing strategy, like your mobile home park strategy. What, you know, maybe that started out one way and, and, and then maybe you can tell us about that and then tell us like, you know, what it morphed into today and what your like target park looks like. Yeah, no, look, so when we started, I, well, when I started, I would generally say uh, I was basically just trying to find the right opportunity, right? So we bought a little uh, transaction in the Midwest um, in Michigan and, you know, it was a good starter park. It was small, 57 sites. Uh, I think as we've grown and evolved, we've gained appreciation for a couple things. Number one, it's no secret, the, the big change in not only employment, but also population. There's a lot of folks that post-COVID uh, and the pandemic have really moved towards the Southeast and Southwestern markets. Um, and, and you've heard these things, right? Californians going to Arizona, uh, New Yorkers going to Florida. Um, whatever, and even folks from the Midwest wanting warmer weather in New Mexico and places you would have never thought of 30 years ago, right? Um, that has been a fundamental shift in not only where people want to live and where they want to work, there's some other pockets like Idaho and, and these markets, that it's just changed, right? And now you layer in the post-COVID world of less office. I was in a meeting last week, a New York office, and I don't quote me on this, but 47% occupied. If you walk around a midtown, uh, midtown in, in New York and you look at night at how many windows don't have a light on, it's terrifying. <laughs> One yeah. out of every two, right? If you take the statistics seriously. So I think when you look at that and you see where, where people want to be, that before 20 years ago, they didn't have that opportunity. We, we, we want to follow that trend. And so selfishly, we, we own the most assets in Florida. We want to own in the Carolinas. We, we are very interested in the Southwestern markets and the South markets. Um, what we have stayed away from, which I think is a little different from from your strategy, and I'm curious to hear how you think about the world. But that that has been the generous general focus. What has changed, you know, and, and will be a challenge, I think, for us and, and guys in the southeast, is the the economy has changed. Right, everything about what we saw um, pre COVID and even that little exciting time after COVID, when things finally got back better, has changed. And in Florida, places like Florida specifically, insurance costs. Right, hurricanes are a real thing. And you know, we can do all the diligence in the world, but the biggest risk when you think about Florida as a market um, and Texas on the coastal side as well, is you just cannot predict the severity of future weather events, right? And so we think about that in terms of diversification. We love the growth in Florida and we want to be a part of it, but we're not going to put all of our eggs in one basket. We think a diversified fund is the format for us to do it uh, successfully. And that's something we'll need to really pay attention to. Um, and we're living it every day. There's no answer to that today. We're, we're learning as, as the market kind of gives us the variables. <laughs> so That's awesome. What about size in, in utility setup? Do you have any specifics there or will you just kind of look at anything? Yeah, well, 
I will say, so what has changed when we first started, we went to smaller communities because pricing was kind of crazy, right? Uh, there was a point in time where, uh, and it's it's public knowledge now, but cap rates for MH were lower um, than multifamily, uh, lower than some bonds to, to, to give you just a crazy <laughs> example. So it was like, hey, I could go buy a mobile home park more and pay more than like a good bond in the public markets. So it was kind of scary. Yeah. yeah. So we we said we wanted to be part of Florida, but we didn't want to be exposed that way. God forbid interest rates change. And so what we did was we we bought those smaller deals. I think now what we're seeing is a lot of groups are on the sidelines waiting to figure out where the world will be. Um, some of them took some financing risks that we would not have taken. A lot of, you know, simply put, we put, put fixed rate debt with five to 10 years of term. So we know what our interest cost is for a long period of time. Other folks might have taken the risk on interest rates changing. But yeah, going forward, I mean, we, we have seven opportunities that we're working through right now for our, our 2023 fund, and we're continuously offering. The, the average size now is, is well over 100 sites for those assets. So I, it's a moving target, right? Um, what fundamentally is the same is we want to continue to chase the theme of the Sun Belt, and that's Southeast, Southwest. We want to, you know, we want to chase markets that are business friendly. And so we think that's going to be the, the, the Southeast and Southwest, and we want to continue to focus there. On utilities, I will say, I wish we were sharper about that. At the end of the day, I think if it's septic and well, we can quantify the risk there. Um, so we're willing to buy that. We're even willing to do wastewater treatment plant. It, it just comes down to due diligence and figuring sure. out a cost there. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And yeah, my strategy has been Midwest-based. You know, yeah. Uh, I live in and Florida. I want to hear about that. I've I've always been so curious about that. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, we've been targeting these like secondary tertiary markets that you know are not your explosive growth, uh, you know, population growth markets, but they're you know they they stay the same Midwest markets. You know, your your Des Moines, Iowa's, your Sioux Falls, South Dakotas, your Bismarck, North Dakotas, those types of markets, right. and uh, you know they've just been we've just honestly found more better deals you know, compared to the deals in Florida that we've looked at. Oh, no question. It's, no question. You probably, I, I, there's no question at all that you've probably gotten way better price. <laughs> but it's, yeah, but I mean, I, I do, I do think the Sunbelt, obviously the migration patterns, it's, it's clear as day that, you know, people are moving uh, to the coastline. So I, I totally see the value in your strategy. No, and look, and, and that's the thing, right? So we talk sometimes to the same investors and I always say at the end of the day, one provides much better yields, right? Look, we could never pay the kind of dividends that you're able to deliver, right? I, I think you, you that's probably one of the best things I've seen or heard from from your group is just it's such good pricing. Uh, in our world, like, yeah, we're buying growth stocks, right? So when you think yeah. about our world, you get very, well, you did, I think the world's changing, but historically, the dividends were lower, but you had so much more growth. So yeah. it's a trade-off. The Neither is better or worse. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Let's see here. What mistakes in mobile home park investing have you made that we could learn from? Look, the I am a person that um, probably too obsessive about speed, right? And I've been very blessed with the team that we have now. But there were times I did think that management is a is just like acquisitions, right? You find a deal, you got a checklist, you go through it. Management, it is so much about the people yeah. and and about the company and the brand and the reputation. And I, you know, for me, that was a discovery and just figuring out who the right person is to manage people. I'm not to say I'm a bad manager. I hope my team wouldn't say that, <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm just one of those folks that when I see something, I want to go right. And managers, at least the, the, you know, today we have a great one. Jay Eben heads up our operations. He is a thoughtful guy. 
will sit through and understand people's challenges, where they want to grow to, where they want to be in a couple of years, right? And it's not that I don't want that, but sometimes I get lost in what's going on today. Um, and, and Jay is able to say, Hansel, these are the things you need to think about. That to me has been a life-changing learning experience uh, that I, I don't know. I just can't imagine what'll be just as impactful. Um, and, and I'm hope I'm getting better at that, but it's, it's that disconnect. I'm sure you live it too, right? Between growth and acquisitions and just thinking through the deal lens and Hey, sure. you also have a company that needs to, that you need to pay attention to and think about strategically from a people and, and where we're going as a direction. But that's good. Yeah. So management, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Are you guys managing all your assets in house, you know, and yep. what does the management operations look like? Yeah. So from a management perspective, and, and I am curious to hear how you guys do it as well. I mean, I do believe that the best management is done in house to the extent you can do it. Right. So mm -hmm. we, we basically grow our management company company liter, uh, linearly to the acquisitions that we do. So if we buy in a new market, we'll want to hire a good talented manager down there. A lot of times you actually keep some of the people that come with an acquisition. Um, but that said, as we get bigger in certain markets like Florida, we've grown regional managers and those sorts of things, but I, we do manage everything in house, even our accounting. And, and again, that kind of goes back to my just core principle of, I, I do like speed. And so when I get financials from our company internally, I get it every Friday. If we had to depend on an outside firm, it would be maybe every month. And so, sure. you know, on the management side, when we have issues, I know about it that week, um, yeah. or at least we try to, you know, to the extent we can control it. Whereas third-party managers, not to fault them at all, um, it, there's just not that same level of care as an owner would have, right? Um, that said, there are markets where you know we still are learning how to best manage and find the right people. Where we do, we haven't had to yet, but we've thought about leaning on a third-party manager, um, but we just haven't yet. We haven't had the need yet. Gotcha. Yeah, ours is similar. We, we built it out in-house, and uh, you know it, it's tough to build that, right? Like you're saying, you need that oh, speed yeah. of acquisitions to be able to hire the right people. And uh, I, I told the story about this in another podcast, but yeah, like all the cash flow from like my first five deals went into hiring employees to help build the management oh, company course. to go, you know, to go to the next five. So it was, you of know, it was course. tight there for a while, but it was so worth it. You know, now that you have the scale and you can afford everybody, it's like I said, it's, you're, you're managing it way better. But do you guys That's have on-site right. managers and then regionals and then like a corporate office type of setup? Yeah. So, well, yes. Historically, yes. We've had on-site managers that report to regionals and then we have a corporate office. Our, our corporate office is in Orlando. And so the that fundamentally has been it. I will say, and you're probably experiencing it yourself, technology and software is changing in a way that I'm still learning every day how to best use it. You know, these days we're starting to lease remotely. We're, we're on some properties, 100% online pay, even in senior communities where you never would have imagined, right? Um, so I, there's, I think there will be some efficiencies to come with time in terms of, we may, we may start to consolidate the way we think about properties. Um, but yeah, fundamentally I, we do think uh, having a presence at a property or at least regionally is critical because for, as you know, right in our case in Florida, we've had hurricanes, right? You need someone on the ground to be there to, to help tenants through even simple things like getting tarps for a roof or what have you. There's no better way to do that than having a person there. You can have all the cameras in the world. It's not the same touch and care. Um, so we think that's critically important. But that said, as you get bigger, you start kind of having overlapping people and you want to think about how to best use them. So in our case, we've moved them to different regions. Some of our best people, we give them growth opportunities to move. 
um, especially as we're continuing to grow, um, you know, with future transactions. Very cool. Very cool. Um, let me see here. What are the most important things that passive investors, you know, we're talking limited partners, what are the most important things they need to look for when investing into mobile home parks in your eyes? Like if you were going to invest passively, what, what would you want to look at? I mean, look, it's uh, investing is a funny game, right? I mean, you can always read all the materials, all the details, and you'd always be shocked that when you call a couple references, it'll tell you way more than, <laughs> than, uh, than any deck or model would, right? So, I, you know, first things first, uh, as you've done, you've got an incredible brand and you probably do one of the neatest things out there in that you provide such education. When I first started, I listened to a lot of your podcasts. There's another oh, guy you, who knows. <laughs> oh, it means a lot, man. Like it's, it's important for guys like us. Right. And, uh, and so you, you create a level of transparency that we don't even do. Um, so I think first thing is those references, which you'd have plenty of good ones. Right. And that's first, I think second it's track record and, and everybody's right to point that out. You want to see how someone's done on, on a deal by deal or, or historical perspective. And then just, I guess at a real estate level, everybody has different strategies, right? So I think it's more so about understanding what you want out of an investment than it is, hey, this mobile home park is a good deal versus a bad deal. Because mm -hmm. like I said, right? I mean, look at our strategies and how different they are, but our, some of our same investors like us for very different reasons, right? You know, our, our strategy is more focused on exposure to the Sun Belt, exposure to Florida, exposure to these markets that are growing a lot. And that's a different type of investment strategy than somebody who um, may invest in more kind of traditional Western or Midwestern markets, right? Where they're getting like, I mean, in some cases, Cash I've heard flow. 10, 12, yeah. oh my yeah, gosh, like 10, 12, yeah. yeah, 10 to 12% dividends. Like that's amazing. Well, you know, I've <laughs> never been able to do that in, in Florida. <laughs> so it's just a different strategy. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing, you know, with what we offer, we're luckily, we've been able to return capital through a refi very quickly in some instances within three years. Um, and I think that's exciting for guys that want that growth. Um, and then on the other side, you know, there's, there's, you know, opportunities like the Midwest where you get amazing current dividends. Like you just, but you said, like you said, you might grow three to 4% after that, but Hey, you're making such good dividends. It's like, Hey, why not? Um, so I think if I was to do it myself, those would be the most important things. And, and that's what I find some people struggle with is they like the space, they like the operator and everything, but they don't themselves know what do I want out of an investment. Right. And when you sure. talk to them, you're kind of prying it out of them to figure that out. And, and so it's a little bit of soul searching, but. Yeah, no, that's good feedback, right? Cause like, when's the return of capital, you know, timeline, what's the, the dividend going to look like? I think that's all important stuff to take, uh, take into account. And like you're saying, you know, like you're, you're kind of having that rent growth opportunity and a very high population growth, you know, Sunbelt. Uh, so yeah, no, that's, that's really cool. I think, uh, you know, diversification is key too. So a little of both. Uh, would be nice. Um, Hansel, That's very true. what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why? That's a good question. Hmm. Uh, the perfect one. I mean, we, if, if we had a crystal ball, it would be a five-star waterfront, but not Dang in it. Florida because of hurricanes. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it would actually be, it would actually be in, uh, in somewhere in the Michigan, uh, right on, on Lake, uh, on the lake. And, and look, I mean, I love senior communities. I really do. Um, it, it's a product type that's almost a little difficult to get your hands on sometimes. Um, I, I just love everything about those types of communities. Um, and then there's there's some vacancy so we can bring in homes. You know, one of the things, and you know, 
right, that we always look for is, is hey, here's a really good, well-located, good infrastructure, good site layout, but the owner has owned it for two decades and likes their dividends, so they don't want to spend half a million dollars on repaving roads or mm. adding amenity houses or cleaning up the signage, right? So we love those opportunities, right? The stuff that your lender doesn't understand when you buy it, but they do when you go back to them in three <laughs> years and say, hey, we're, we've done it, right? Yeah. Um, that's the ideal. What, what we can never make up for is location. Um, and you always want to be in a location that you feel good about, that you always feel can can kind of live through these, even in a time like today that we're mm -hmm. seeing in the marketplace. Um, but that would that would be ideal. And there will be one day when we're, we're more focused on the turnaround stuff. We're not doing stabilized, um, which I say stabilized, but essentially we're, hey, there's really not much rent growth. You're just buying trophy stuff you want to brag about someday. <laughs> um, so we're very focused on the turnaround stuff, which I think both of, both you and I do. So we're always looking for opportunities like that. Tell me a little and, bit about that, if you don't mind, like yeah. the value add. I think a lot of our listeners come from multifamily and they're they're used to kind of seeing that value add and, and the different strategies to kind of increase NOI in apartments. Yeah. But what would you say like are the, the go-to value add items that you guys implore in your portfolio? Oh man, so it's so varied, right? Um, and it's so market specific, but fundamentally it, it does come down to spending money, right? I, I think there are two classes of investors. There are those that feel good about spending substantial dollars to improve a community. And there's the other group of investors that just love getting as many dividends as you can. I think to do a good job, you have to do both, right? Mm -hmm. The last thing anybody wants is to increase rents on somebody, but have no justification for doing it. We sure. we have we all learn this by doing, right? It's, it's not how I thought about it initially. We've been fortunate to learn from those mistakes. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're going in and, and keep in mind, we buy land lease communities, right? Most of what we own, we're talking about a homeowner. And they they own the house, we own the ground, and and so they they are responsible for everything inside the house. So we're making sure that they're if they have a bunch of used cars sitting outside their lot, we want to clean that up. We want it to be one to two per home. We want to make sure there's parking lots to the extent we're able to do it. We want to make sure that the roads are paved, signage, little things you don't even think about, like a speed bump and a signage for watch for children is a monumental thing when you walk a property. <laughs> yeah, you think it should be there, but you don't. You know, you don't. As, as residents in our own communities, we don't think about those things, right? Um, we also do believe in landscaping. Sometimes we'll even spend the money in the beginning to just uh, clean up a, a homeowner's lot and, and fencing and all that on our dime. And the reason being, again, it's, there's always some friction, right? People are used to certain things the way that they were. And if we want to get it to a community we feel proud of, there's a lot of changes that have to happen. And the biggest one you don't think about is like fencing. You'll have like chain link fences with a Rottweiler scaring everybody that walks by. Yeah. And something something like that, um, you got to be careful how you do it, but you need to educate residents on why that's not a good way for a community. And you, and almost always when you're done, they look back and say, thank you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, But it, it's a lot of work on the ground. So everything you can imagine from infrastructure, landscaping, signage, um, we, we love to repave roads. I think it's one of the best things you can do to a community to the extent that it's worth doing and the numbers work out. Uh, and then, you know, clubhouses, I have learned you almost always want to renovate them because a lot of our communities are from the fifties and sixties. So to the extent that we have the funds, we want to go out and do that. Even if it's minor things like repainting interiors and stuff. Um, and then the basic, I say basic, but the things that you and I live every day and just, you know, the functional stuff the the roof uh if there's um 
drainage issues, right? Infrastructure issues. Those are more, nobody even notices when you do it. But as an operator, you want to get ahead of those before they become a huge problem. So those we do as well, but those are not as exciting. The resident doesn't get to see that, uh, nor the investor really. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, you, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, because my like, you know, when I think value add, my like top priority stuff is like, I'm going to spend the money on stuff that's going to get more income, you know, infill, yeah. rehabbing homes, sub metering, you know, you know, obviously uh, we install like some storage facilities, sometimes storage units and kind of rent those out. Um, so anything that's going to generate the income and the general cleanup, obviously there's a lot of these parks that have deferred maintenance. So we do spend some money on that. But I would say right. like the majority of our budget goes to like increasing the income. So I'm curious if like the properties you're buying just have, you know, in the, in the, in the Sunbelt have less of that, like meat on the bone, if you will. And more, the yeah. bigger opportunity is like redoing the roads and kind of the common areas and things like that. Well, no. And that's a, look, it's a great distinction, right? So we don't do as a strategy, we really don't do much infill, right? Okay. Um, so when we buy something, it's almost 85% occupied or higher. Hmm. We and why stuff. is that? A, it's just the market, right? So in our markets, I mean, think of Miami, right? And I say Miami, what vacancy is there going to be in Miami, right? There is, we bought an asset north of Miami where the entire market was 99% occupied. So when you think about a market like that, right, there's fundamentally, there isn't, there isn't much to do on the fill, but what has not been done is, is owners historically have been a little lazy on the, on the cleanup work. And so we will go in and we'll spend the money on, on repositioning the property with, with put, and then, you know, recouping those costs with, with rent increases. And it is shocking, right? And not to say that we've done it, but a place like South Florida market-wide, Andrew grew by 30% last year, 30%. Right. So when you think about that, it is, it's crazy. So it's just a different strategy. We'd love to do infill, but it's very hard to find in in Florida. There's some, I won't say that there isn't, but we just haven't had to focus on it. And then, so instead we think about, Hey, like what's the nicest thing in town and how can we get our property to that standard? Um, So so you're, you're exactly right. It's such a different strategy. Um, And we do all the basics of building back utilities and, and all that stuff too. um, And unbundling. Um, but definitely I like the occupancy. We, we, I sometimes wish we had more of that, honestly, it'd make life a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the stuff that, you know, is more of our bread and butter, but that's, yeah. that's interesting that the occupancy is so well, high. And, and I've heard that too. I mean, you guys do that very well. Like, I don't, I don't think today we have the team to do that. It's something I want to to strive for. Um, but we just haven't built that out yet. And it's something, it's a priority. I've heard your team does an incredible job at it. <laughs> oh, thank so, you. Yeah. No, yeah, thank you, thank you a ton for the for the kind words. Let me ask you this: you know, obviously it's a shaky time, right? What do you think the, the future of mobile home park investing looks like? How do you see mobile home parks fitting in, you know, with the economy and the direction it's going? Uh, higher interest rates, you know, possible recession. Yep. What are your thoughts on that? No, look, I mean, one of the things um, when you asked about how or why I went into manufactured housing, one of the things that I fundamentally just was obsessed with was how defensive the industry is, right? Mm-hmm. When I got into it, 08 was a very strong performing year for manufactured housing. It was actually one of the only places where income grew. Uh, everywhere else in real estate had declines in income. COVID, which was probably one of the scariest times of my personal life. <laughs> I was actually living in New York at the time, and you could imagine how terrifying that is. Oh, geez. So, 
Yeah, no, no. I mean, even then, when I we had some significant doubts about how things would hold up, did incredibly well, right? And and we 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 had although we had delays in collections, we were helping tenants to make sure that they can get through the things that were going on in their lives. Um, fundamentally, the business was unchanged. We held up well. What has been difficult to predict is the financing side, right? And so what I always say when we look forward is we know the customer is going to be there. We know affordable housing continues to be one of the biggest challenges in the country. And unfortunately, that's only getting harder and harder, right? With interest rates going up, home prices and the ability to buy a house is getting harder for the average person. And multifamily, forget about it, right? I mean, we, we've seen in our markets rents that are, I wouldn't say unsustainable because there is such a shortage of housing period in some of the places we're in. But it is almost crazy to think how much rents have grown in the apartment space. So, and we're 50% cheaper than that. So, and the same probably goes for you. So when I think about us, we're so distanced from everything else. I think we'll hold up very well. The scary part for both of us, frankly, is just interest rates. And you don't want to be the guy that buys a property that that is a very good investment, but you you took your, your financing and you went to a bank and got a loan that your interest rate could change daily. And for the guys that have done that and have been successful, um, it's because they got out of that as quickly as possible. But for the ones that still hold on to that, I mean, it's a very scary time. We, we, we you and I would both not be having this call had we no. done those things. Yeah. And so, yeah. So for us, strategy-wise, we we want to continue to focus on the areas we've been. We're super bull on manufactured housing. Nothing's changed there from a customer and demand perspective. What we're more cautious about is what cap rates we're buying at. What kind of returns are we delivering day one to investors? I think fundamentally investors want more return, which is very sincere given the options that are out there today. And then when we think about us, even for me personally, if we're buying something, we want debt to be fixed day one. If we can't do that with enough time to repay our debt, arguably 10 years if we can do it, but minimum five years, we, we just won't, we will not participate. That's um, smart. And that's just, yeah. yeah, that's just our view. But I'm curious no, yours though. <laughs> mine's the same way. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't... Uh... Even if the rate's higher, right, which it usually is, you know, right. the fixed rate is just a, is just more moated. It's just a, a safer, more reliable kind of outlook. So that's what we do. We typically do 10-year balloons upon acquisition, which will be that's like great. five-year fixed with like a regional lender, five-year fixed, and then it adjusts at the five-year mark and then it's fixed for another five, just so we have that 10-year 10 10 year time horizon. And then like you, we're trying to refinance as quickly as possible. So like within the first right. five years, refinance into a you know agency loan uh fixed for you know at least 10 years is like our whole model it's like how can we get this property that's a mom and pop property add value to it fix it up get it to qualify for agency debt and then lock it in and you know refinance into 60 percent leverage every 10 years oh that's that's exactly what we do i think we're a little fortunate in how quickly we can do it sometimes because and and that's so market driven like we don't underwrite that the market's just been helpful um, but you're exactly right. That that is our MO. And I am curious, what is scarier to you? A personal guarantee or a two-year balloon where you've got to pay the debt in two years? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I would say the balloon in two years, you know, like me too. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I think right now, interest rates, I think, are gonna stay higher for longer. I think everybody kind of has this, you know, dream that things are gonna kind of peak and then they're gonna start coming back down. But I just yeah. I don't know, man. Nobody knows. And it's I would I would rather not guess you know, with, with something <laughs> like that. So pretty, uh, pretty important, but uh, dude, well, thank you so much for all this valuable, you know, information and these golden nuggets. If you had one more tip to give a passive investor yeah. uh, before we log off, 
you know, what yeah. would that be to someone looking to passively invest in mobile home parks? What, 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 what would you throw their way? So it's funny. And I, I do want to hear your take on this as well. Uh, sincerely. I mean, uh, the only people I've ever seen or heard of lose money ex- aside from just paying ridiculous prices. I think anybody is susceptible to that and can make that mistake is on the rental home side. Um, guys that have bought tough quality properties where the landowner, you know, we buy a community, a mobile home community, you own the land and you own the house. Um, I've actually heard of people losing their, you know, not, I wouldn't say their whole investment, but losing on their investment. And outside of that, I've actually never heard, I haven't heard that many horror stories. So we stay away from that. We're, and if we do do it, it's because it's a brand new community. I think there's a stark difference between a brand new house you put on and you're renting and older homes that have been there for a long time and you're also renting because the older homes have so much maintenance, right? Yeah. And the people that want to live in a rinky dink, ugly, you know, just beaten down home are not the best, you know, residents, unfortunately, sometimes. And so I'm curious, like, that to me would be the one thing to be cautious of. If someone's doing that on the rental side, owning the homes and the land, just be cautious and know how you know how good is your maintenance team? How big is it? Where is it located? There's a lot more work there. If you're buying land lease stuff, I just feel like it's a simple business. The only thing you can do wrong is, is overpay, truthfully. No. Yeah. No, I've had some, for, for my consistent listeners to this podcast, I've had some heated debates with operators oh, really? that have park-owned home models. And, you know, I think for some, you know, their strategy is, Hey, we're going to buy a lot of parks in this really close area and I'm going to have a full-time maintenance team. And then, then it maybe works, right. If you're in a, like a high rental uh, environment, but, but I agree. I think that's where a lot of your risk lies is in these mobile homes. And, and, you know, it's from flipping houses, you, you probably know this, but like mobile homes are completely different to rehab. The drywall is a different size. The windows are a different size. The doors are a different size. You know, you can't just go to Home Depot and get all this stuff. You got to, you know, special order it. So it's, it's more expensive, right? Like to get these things to where you need it. And then, and that's where I think you get in trouble. So that's, that's a really good point on the, the park owned homes. Yeah. And do you, and do you guys do it? I was always curious. Like, so you guys stay clear to that? We do. Yeah. So we'll do like the rent to owns, you know, kind of selling them back yeah. to the tenants and then. Uh, oh, but to we, get out of them as quickly as possible. Yeah. And we're like giving fire sale deals. We're not you know, I put a post today, like we're not, you know, I, there's an owner that I know that like charges like 20% interest, you know, to the end buyers for their homes. And it's like, it's oh, kind of wow. counterintuitive to like the end goal, which is getting them to be tenant owned homes where literally, you know, the turnover rate is four to 5% per year that, that has, you know, right. been true for us in our portfolio. So we, uh, yeah, we encourage home ownership and just try to get typically the money we have in the home out of it uh, when we sell them. No, that's great. Yeah, no, I, we and I agree with you. I think sometimes you buy a community and there's a good bit of them that you have to work through to sell to homeowners. Um, and we will, you know, we'll do those things as well. So no, that's very consistent. That's crazy. What the, the heated debates I've got to listen to. Um, there's <laughs> been a couple of them. Us. Yeah, you, uh, you'd you have a blast listening to some of those because there was some pretty passionate uh, discussion. But yeah, dude, I'm I'm thankful so much for you to come on. You know, I think uh, the park owned home comment is good, you know, for like ways people lose in, in, in mobile home parks. I think that's uh, a big reason. And then, yeah, obviously I think the financing, you know, people that have just kind of made bad decisions or kind of, you know, I've heard of ways people got in trouble outside of the asset class and then were like yeah. forced to sell the, the mobile home park asset because of that. But mm-hmm. I think another big thing, and I'd love your feedback on this just before we log off is like liquidity, like as an operator. Yeah. 
You know, how important yep. is that? Because to me, that's like, that's the leverage that that we have because I've I've heard horror stories of like loans called due by banks, you know, yeah. you know, with with like, you know, the debt service coverage ratio is covered, everything's fine, but the lender like, you know, calls a loan due because they decided they don't want to have that on their balance sheet anymore. So I think liquidity is pretty important, but I'm I'm curious what your thoughts no, are. You're... Oh my God. I mean, anybody that lived through COVID knows after that. Right. So yeah. of course. And, and it is funny, right. I'm younger. I'm, I'm, I just turned 30 a couple of days ago and it is, you know, that, that's probably one of the biggest things people kind of harp on when they invest in their funds is like, well, how much skin in the game are you putting? And, and I naturally, we put a little less because it's all me. I think of my company almost as like a family company in some senses, right? And, uh, but the reason for sure is to your point, liquidity. I mean, how many times have you had where you, you're right at the refinancing mark, but you got to go spend $200,000 all of a sudden just to be able to get the final thing that the bank wants done before you close, right? And, yeah. and you know, as an investor, you don't, you only hear about it when it's a complete problem. It's a capital call. That is everyone's nightmare. I've never had to do it. I hope I never have to do it. But the reason I've, I've been able to avoid it is we have working capital as a company. And if you care about your company, you need to have excess cash. And I, I've just been shocked at the, the times where we've, it's come down to the wire. We're right there, but all of a sudden we need this much cash. I've, I've heard of the horror stories, like you said, where someone literally has to go back to their investors and they say no. And, and you're now in a situation where you could arguably be in default, lose the entire thing over a couple, I wouldn't say a couple dollars, it's considerable sums. But in, if you had planned accordingly, you could have avoided. And the only way to solve that is cash. So yeah, yeah. We, we keep, I mean, it's hard to say as a percentage, but when we actually buy something, part of our, we call it a cap table. But when you look at our purchase price and everything we want to spend on the property, we actually factor in cash, beginning cash. And we do that on every single deal. And then as a company, I, you know, as an owner, I, we keep excess cash even on top of that to make sure that if for whatever reason we planned incorrectly, we, we always have like an in-home line that we can send to whatever property needs it. And I just think anybody should be careful. Real estate yeah. fundamentally is a good business. I think it's a very stable business, but you have to have enough time to pay your debt to have the flexibility to do it on your terms. And you got to have cash. Everybody that gets hurt is because they didn't have cash. Right? It's those two things. You're exactly right. Literally. Yeah. Literally. So <laughs> awesome, Hansel. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. If listeners would like to get a hold of you, what, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, sure. Yeah. So email me is the easiest. So uh, emails Hansel at core, C O A R E M H C dot com. Um, so again, it's Hansel at C O A R E M H C dot com. And we've got a website, corecommunities.com. You can always check that out as well. Um, although it does need to get better. Your website's way better than mine. So <laughs> I think we need to fix that too someday. It's not about the website. It's about the returns, right? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> awesome, dude. That's we'll put those idea. in the show notes. So uh, all the listeners can, can get your email and the, the website address. Hansel, sure. thanks again, dude, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, for sure, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Seriously. Awesome. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.